Georgia Democrats are at a crossroads. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy. We are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just listening to us for the first time, welcome. And follow us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review. It helps us grow the show. Well, Patricia, campaign season is not quite over yet, at least in our household. Special guest, Nicole Bluestein is here with us. She is running for mayor of her school's village, right? What, what's the deal, Nicole? I am running for mayor of J.A. Biztown, where we are going on a field trip in January. And um, I, we helped with her campaign speech, and you'll love this, Patricia. Um, I kind of took from Senator Warnock's victory speech, adapted it, <laughs> and said, you can't know the people unless you walk with the people, you can't oh, walk no. with the people, unless you love the people, you can't love the people, unless you understand the <laughs> but people. But I deleted that part. <laughs> and she deleted Thank the whole thing. Thank you, Nicole. Good it's too job. Juicy. I need it to be like kid friendly. So tell it, tell it real quick. Tell kid friendly and not that. plagiarized. Yes, not plagiarized. I adapted to not plagiarize. Um, tell, tell her what your speech was, though. You don't know. Okay, get out of here. Thank you. What a good Georgia. Luck. We're all pulling for you. Georgia. <laughs> she just got really shy. Well, coming up on today's episode, we're going to continue unpacking the results of the runoff, the midterms, talk about where Democrats go from here. Also, Governor Brian Kemp's memo that dives more into his victory over Stacey Abrams and how things are changing for the governor and Senator Warnock now that they are national figures. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia, I don't know if, if mixed bag is the right word because Democrats only won one of their statewide elections and lost every other one. But Warnock's victory over Herschel Walker at least gives Democrats some reason to be optimistic and to continue posing Georgia, framing Georgia as a battleground state. But at the same time, Stacey Abrams loses. Every other statewide contender whose name is not Raphael Warnock lost in the midterms and by pretty considerable margins for a state where the politics are as closely divided as Georgia. And so Democrats now face this question about the party's future. What approach could they take in 2024, 2026 down the road to start winning these statewide elections? Do they continue with Stacey Abrams' strategy, even if she's not on the ticket, of trying to maximize liberal votes by energizing and expanding the base? Or do they take a cue from what Senator Warnock was able to pull off, which was appealing more to swing ticket voters, split ticket voters, independents, moderates? It could be an anomaly. 
you know, because Herschel Walker's uh, candidacy was also very unique. But at the same time, Senator Warnock might have run the same campaign, even if Herschel Walker wasn't lined up against him. And there are many people in the party who feel like that's the ticket for the future. Greg, something that you said recently, I think was the really smart way to talk about the difference between the Abrams campaign and the Warnock campaign. And that is that the Warnock campaign was adaptable. They really read the electorate and adjusted accordingly. I can't, I don't think you can say the same thing about the Abrams campaign. So it's always important for candidates to have their core principles. Voters have to know who the candidates are and believe that they're not changing just based on polling or just based on um, political conditions. They don't want them to look hypocritical. But I think it is really important for campaigns to look at the direction that the electorate is going and read the mood that they're in. And I think right now, I think the incumbency was a big piece of their both of their wins for Kemp and Warnock. But also Warnock, I think, could read and understand and feel voters just total exhaustion with partisanship, looking for a place to go if they felt like their own party in the Republicans case had gotten too extreme or just unelectable. He gave them a path to come back to the Democrats. And you just didn't see that path to the Abrams campaign for Republicans. And I've heard from lots of voters who said, you know, I actually just got an email from a 75 year old white voter, male in Buckhead, who said, am I the typical voter that a Democratic campaign would go after? No, I'm not. So he's quite sure he was not targeted by any particular campaign. But he listened to the Warnock message, and he heard in their solutions, and he saw somebody who in his opinion, was not driven by partisanship, but was driven by something different. And that is why he voted for Warnock, but not for Abrams. And so I think for the Democratic Party going forward, they're going to have to really broaden out the group of people who feel like they can come to the Democrats to support them statewide. I mean, these House districts, state House and Senate districts as well, those are pretty much going to be gerrymandered beyond recognition for the next several years. But it's going to be all about these statewide races. And I think that Warnock was the is obviously the campaign to pay attention to in the future. And Democrats, I have not heard them taking a lot of lessons, at least not vocally, from the Abrams loss. And I think they need to, though, do some soul searching and think about why she lost by so much and what they need to do to change in the future to really start to have durable success in this state. Of course, Democrats can't depend on running against a candidate as flawed as Herschel Walker is. Um, every cycle. And of course, Herschel Walker, we've talked about on the show plenty of times, he he had a a mountain of personal issues of baggage, of erratic behavior on the campaign trail, of blunders that kind of fed right into Senator Warnock's argument that he was unfit to serve as a U.S. senator. But at the same time, Warnock had to uphold his end of the bargain, as you mentioned, and give those moderate, independent swing voters, even some Republican voters, a path to voting for him, an opening, almost permission to cast a ballot for a Democrat or at least withhold their vote from a candidate like Herschel Walker. And look, you know, we saw that when I say adaptable, that's not an understatement because in 2020, we saw Senator Warnock run a vastly different campaign, much more like Stacey Abrams uh, ran in 2018 and in 2022, appealing to liberal voters, appealing relentlessly by embracing Joe Biden's agenda as a recently, you know, the runoff as a recently elected incoming president of tying himself to John Ossoff, uh, another Democratic candidate, of just appealing to the base and not really mentioning his opponent's name. He, he, you know, even in his memoir of the 2020 election and his life, he barely mentions 
Kelly Leffler's name the entire book, which I thought was rather interesting. A completely different strategy turned on its head in, in this race, where instead of trying to make it national issues, he and his strategists recognized very early on. I mean, not in this was months and months ago, more than a year ago. Uh, this wasn't a kind of late shift for them. That uh, the only way or the best way to win was to make this a contrast with with Herschel Walker. I think also to your point, Democrats are not always going to get as lucky to have a candidate as flawed as Herschel Walker. But the Raphael Warnock campaign and Democrats definitely made the most out of that. And this still ended up being really a much closer race than I think people around the country expected it to be. And so it ended up that it was extremely important for Democrats to continue to hammer those negatives on Herschel Walker at the same time as they were still able to push those positive messages with those now, I think, really famous ads of Raphael Warnock walking his puppy again, having to camera messages on Thanksgiving Day with very, very positive messages. I think it's an ad strategy that other campaigns in the future are going to be looking at to see how can we do two things at once without damaging our message in the process. A very, very tough negative campaign against the opponent while also maintaining really positive messages about the candidate himself. And I think that's something that was done extremely well in that Warnock race and um, is going to be something that others look at in the future. And Patricia, this is something we mentioned in the last podcast, but we didn't. We, we can delve deeper into it now. But um, of course, you have the sort of the, the counter argument from Lauren Grow Wargo of Stacey Abrams' campaign. She's Stacey Abrams. Not only is she Stacey Abrams' top aide and, and campaign manager, but really sort of a key cog of her innermost inner circle. And Lauren Grow Wargo had that now sort of semi-famous fifty-two part social media thread where she said it was nearly impossible, in her words, for Abrams to beat Governor Kemp in the first place. She basically framed uh, Stacey Abrams as a political martyr whose work set the stage for Warnock's victory. And she said that basically the 2020 campaign, when Stacey Abrams was busy working on expanding the Democratic base and helping Warnock and Joe Biden win Georgia, was when she was also the main focus of attacks from Republicans that kept her her favorability numbers down and they stayed down throughout the 2022 election. You wrote a column on this and the uh, basically not just the timing, of course, but the tone of that message. And you had some pretty strong thoughts about that. Well, I feel like that particular set of tweets, it rightly took credit for um, sort of the environment for Democrats to win in Georgia. I think that Stacey Abrams was a big, big part of that. Uh, uh, in 2018, coming that close in Georgia really brought the attention of national funders, national press, and stronger candidates below her on the ticket for 2022. It got everybody's attention that this was a state in play. Um, it also got Joe Biden's attention that this was a state in play. It also, um, you know, may have contributed to all of the people who did end up running in 2022. So there was a lot that Stacey Abrams did right. Um, but at the same time, she had a lot of self-inflicted wounds that Lauren didn't touch on at all in her tweet thread. You know, I think the decision not to concede the 2018 election, it's a decision I think that she made in full, you know, with full information and would make again, 
But that didn't play well with Georgia voters after Donald Trump also did not concede his election. I heard from a lot of Democratic strategists around the state that her statement um, that was taken out of context, but it was still her statement that she would defund the police. That was a huge problem for voters outside of Atlanta um, and probably some voters inside of Atlanta. And it wasn't a problem for the Democratic base, but it was a problem for that subset of voters she just you have to have to win statewide here Mm -hmm. in georgia as a battleground state you're not going to win it with just a clean republican strategy or clean democratic strategy and i just don't feel like her tweets allowed for that you know nancy pelosi became a punching bag for years and years and years still managed to find the path for her to become speaker remain speaker uh she was in a safe seat but she knew what she needed to do at the end of the day to win and maintain power. The Abrams campaign, I think, did take a lot of incoming, but there wasn't a strategy to offset that. There wasn't a strategy to have this long-term plan in the state of Georgia. How do we get across the finish line against an incumbent? You know, it's different to run against an incumbent. It's a different race. But to say that it was unwinnable, I think that is not something that uh, her fellow Democrats really wanted to hear. No, not at all, especially after spending the amount of money that was spent on that race. But one of the, um, you know, we, we heard a lot of criticism from Democrats who, who also noted that there just was, as you said, a lack of accountability of mistakes that Stacey Abrams made. But one thing that Lauren Groerger did say, which did resonate with a lot of Democrats and, frankly, Republicans I talked to, was, was this phrase. In November, the white voters who had supported Abrams' work in 2018 and 2020 balked at giving Abrams the job of governor because Kemp wasn't, quote, that bad, and she had been tarnished by the unrelenting assault. And look, we've talked about that, how Governor Kemp's decision to balk at Donald Trump's efforts to illegally overturn the, the, the Georgia election helped make him a moderate, helped make him a re- more reasonable candidate in the minds of many voters um, because he didn't go along with the efforts that, you know, in some other states where we saw, and frankly here in Georgia, we saw plenty of uh, elected officials and, and party activists like GOP Chair David Schaefer go along with those efforts to overturn the state election, whereas Kemp um, didn't. And that made him more reasonable to some contenders. And I don't know what the better strategy is for Democrats to beat someone like Governor Kemp, who had all sorts of other advantages and and wielded the powers of incumbency very, very effectively. But that is something that has sort of haunted her campaign. And look, this wasn't an unknown. You know, when she got in the race in December of 2021, this wasn't a recent development that had already been baked into cake. But at that time, Governor Kemp looked much more vulnerable because he was being booed at Republican gatherings, because he was facing... Donald Trump's unrelenting attacks because Trump was holding rallies with elected officials from Georgia, including the GOP chair David Schaefer and others who were haranguing, you know, using that stage to trumpet pro-Trump candidates. And so it turned into one from one of his biggest vulnerabilities to one of his biggest strengths. Yeah. And listen, I don't think Brian Kemp knew that that was going to help Brian Kemp at the end. And that is what voters, I think, appreciated about that decision that Brian Kemp made and that Brad Raffensperger made. That was clearly not being done with an eye on winning re-election. I think we can all say with absolute certainty, I don't think that they needed to take that away from Kemp and Raffensperger in order to also make them more vulnerable. Um, Stacey Abrams in 2018 had a very clear message of 
voting rights and health care and really hammering Brian Kemp on overseeing his own election. You know, it was just a very clear message to voters. She didn't have a real clear message to voters this year. We had dozens of messages to voters. Um, you know, I think her message on health care was very strong. Messages on the economy from Kemp were extremely strong. We didn't hear those answered consistently from Abrams. So there were just a number of opportunities, I think, that she could have had. But Democrats saying in retrospect, oh, voters were misled, voters just were buying what the media was selling. We never called him anything other than a conservative, but we did report what he did. It was incumbent upon the Abrams campaign to find a way to message around that, to say that was then, this is now, and this is a conversation about your future. They certainly had the resources to do so as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about Governor Kemp's campaign's rejoinder to Lauren Grover, where they have their own memo about why he did win. We'll also talk about how those victories from both Warnock and Governor Brian Kemp put them in a new sort of political stratosphere. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want the blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with the other host, Patricia Murphy. We're not only your hosts for Politically Georgia, but we're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. In your first month of unlimited digital access, it's less than a dollar. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. So you always know what's really going on. Okay, Patricia. So we talked about Lauren Grewargo's 52-tweet thread uh, from a couple days ago. Well, Governor Brian Kemp's campaign leaked to us its own analysis of how the Republican won re-election. It's not 52 tweets. It's a two-page memo. But in it, it contends that a multi-million dollar investment in direct canvassing and streaming, along with message discipline, helped the Republican defeat Abrams by about eight points. It also included a signal poll of roughly 1,300 general election voters. Here's among the findings. Roughly one-third of Kemp's voters said inflation was their top priority. I don't think that's a huge shock there. 27% said his record and experience were the main reason for their support of the candidate. Although more independents listed abortion over inflation as their top issue, those independents voted for Kemp by a 10-point margin. They also supported Senator Warnock over Herschel Walker by a 19-point margin. So that's an almost 30-point split-ticket swing between those two races and shows you right there how both those candidates were able to navigate this divide with these independent voters. 
I mean, that is crazy. That is such a huge swing for the same group of voters. I think what we can say about both Kemp and Warnock is that voters essentially knew who they were, kind of knew what motivated them, knew what direction they were going to go in. And independent voters, I think, are used to having some disagreements with all of their candidates, but then are looking for, at the very least, authenticity and sort of a level of trust that this person is going to be the person that they say they're going to be. Also, for Kemp and Warnock both, they both had very strong, consistent economic messages. They were packaged totally differently. Warnock was talking about how to bring down individual prices, individual pain points of Medicare prescription drug prices, which have been addressed in the Senate and uh, now signed into law. Looking at insulin prices, that is a huge population here in Georgia of people who have diabetes and are dependent on insulin. Also looking at how to deal with gas prices. Flip over to Governor Kemp. He also had a strong message on gas prices. And if you go back and look at the chart of Democrats' fortunes throughout this 2022 election year, along with gas prices, it is amazing how it tracks Mm. relatively closely. And gas prices, I guess, to the benefit of Raphael Warnock, continue to fall between the general election and the runoff election. That's just a little historical footnote. We'll have to see if that's causation or correlation. But both Kemp and Warnock strong economic messages at a time when a majority of voters were telling us the economy was their most important issue. So in a way, it's not even more complicated than that. You know, this is what's important to voters. These two candidates had answers for that, had plans for that, and had, I think, strong brands independent of their own parties. Kemp got his independent brand by having his big run-in with Trump. And Raphael Warnock, I think because he's new to the Senate, has not been in Washington forever maintained his role as pastor at Ebenezer. And although I know he likes Joe Biden a whole lot, didn't ask Joe Biden to come down here, didn't sort of break into jail on that one. He just stayed away from Joe Biden because voters said they don't like Joe Biden right now. So I think both of them ran. I think discipline was sort of the other common thread between those two campaigns, looking for the um, sort of the uh, traps out there and just avoiding them. Yeah, they had different ways of being disciplined. Governor Kemp would basically say the same thing over and over again. Senator Warnock, He's a pastor. He would he would have different spins on it, but he really did rarely, rarely strayed from from his core messaging. And that's something else that showed up in this two-page memo from Governor Kemp's campaign. This is a quote. Kemp's message discipline allowed him to drive themes about him and his opponent home better than Abrams, who regularly changed messaging course, resulting in issue whiplash for potential Abrams voters. We've talked about this. Stacey Abrams might have had a hundred or so policies and she could go into depth about any single one of them and great depth about them, you know, kind of, uh, you know, go to deep into white paper material on housing affordability, on needs-based scholarships, on tax policy, you name it. She could go into depth about it, but it was really hard to kind of nail down an elevator speech. Uh, frankly, when we were going on TV and, you know, we were being asked or on radio, we were being asked, hey, what's what's Abrams' core policies right now. And they did change, right? I mean, she didn't, she didn't have flip-flopping issues, but some phases of the campaign, it was nonstop anti-abortion, gun control measures. Other parts, she was focused more on raises for public employees and other things. There was a lot there. Legalizing gambling, yep. healthcare, hospital closures, expand Medicaid. expand Medicaid. It just goes on and on and on. It's not a bad thing, but voters have incredibly short attention spans and very full schedules. And so I felt like voters were just really struggling to connect to who is Stacey Abrams' 
now. Like four years was a long time ago. No one's going to Google that. Um, who is Stacey Abrams now? And it just felt like all of those policies made it really hard. It made voters do a lot of extra work, of which voters don't really like to do. And again, these are those swing voters who are up for grabs. Democrats love her. But those swing voters who are up for grabs, it was requiring them to do an immense amount of work to get to yes with Stacey Abrams on her policy proposals. Yeah. And on that phase, I mean, look, Democrats here in Georgia aren't distancing themselves from Stacey Abrams' strategy. Um, most of them are telling me at least that they want to do a, uh, they want to continue it, but also reach out to swing voters. So they kind of want to do both. But at the same time, even candidates like, like Stacey Abrams and Senator Warnock, who are elite fundraisers, they're still limited resources. And so they're going to face that challenge. They have, a, they have a few more years to worry about it. 2024 White House run, and then, of course, 2026, when all sorts of other state, statewide offices are open. But they have plenty of time to st- test out new strategies and to mobilize voters. But the fact is, Senator Warnock is the last Democrat standing on the ballot this year, and he was able to effectively reach out to the middle. And Stacey Abrams wasn't. And we'll see, we'll see where the party goes. But that f- leads us into our next level of discussion, which is Senator Warnock and Governor Brian Kemp, everything they do will now be intensely magnified because both of them are being talked about as national candidates. But more importantly, even if they're not national candidates, and you know, we can talk about how, whether we're skeptics of that, I am, um, in, at least in 2024. Um, but even if they are not national candidates, they still have the p- huge potential to be difference makers for presidential candidates here in Georgia, help steer policy issues, in ways that could attract national attention. For Governor Kemp, he's probably looking for a legacy issue. We know that former Governor Nathan Deal, it was criminal justice. He spent uh, most of his eight-year tenure on criminal justice reform, but really honed in on it his last four years. What's Governor Kemp's legacy going to be now that he has a mandate? There's all sorts of big questions, but we know that the spotlight is not going anywhere far from both these two uh, leading politicians. No, I think, you know, the chances of both of these guys being on any kind of shortlist for a presidential campaign, that does seem a little far-fetched. However, they're definitely going to be in the conversation. They'll absolutely be very, very sought after surrogates. Governor Kemp, I think there's a better chance of him popping to the top just because there is an open presidential field. uh, And there'll just be a lot of conversation. Listen, reporters have only so many names to throw around. and, And he's just come off a huge win that did not include Donald Trump. And so he is really the blueprint for Republicans going forward and without Donald Trump, kind of in a post-Trump world. And that's a very important blueprint. So you really can't downplay how important his victory was here in the state. What I think is also so fascinating is that Georgia now for the next four years is going to have entirely Republican statewide offices at the state level in terms of the constitutional officers, but then two Democratic senators. And that is just going to guarantee that push and pull of the parties here in the state, because we're going to have a lot of very high profile leaders in different parties. That is either an opportunity for them to all kind of work together and find points of commonality and strengthen each other's brands in that way. Or, you know, there may just be some times when they really come to blows. And we haven't been in a situation here in Georgia quite like this, where we've had 
two U.S. senators of opposing parties of the governor. Um, I don't know when that has happened, um, but it's really going to be a different situation here going forward. It felt like the last two years were very temporary. It kind of felt like this sort of very strange uh, suspended reality after those 2021 runoffs. But this is going to be the new normal here in Georgia for the next four years. And it'll be so fascinating to see how these three gentlemen play off of each other or or kind of run into each other and uh, come to blows. You're exactly right. You know, that was the dynamic the last two years, but there was also the never ending campaign. Senator Warren didn't stop running. And so he was still basically on the campaign trail, even as he took his, his he made his victory speech in January of 2021, where now it's different. Now he's entrenched for six years. John Ossoff has four more years. And so we'll start to see those divides sharpen even more because they certainly were there with the federal infrastructure bill, with the Inflation Reduction Act, the American Rescue Plan, the Coronavirus Relief Act, all those measures that Republicans in the state opposed, but the two U.S. senators supported. We're going to see even more of that. And frankly, because Republicans control the U.S. House now, there's going to be divided government. So we'll see a lot of that a gridlock return and also uh, divisions magnify. And that is about all the time we have for our show today. Coming up on Friday's episode, we'll answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. You can also email us, tweet us, find other ways to message us. God knows how many (laughs) platforms and messaging uh, apps there are, but we've heard from listeners from all of them. And Shaney B. can't wait to take your call with his dedicated core of news associates. You bet. And you know what? Carrier pigeons still work these days. Yeah, you know, we, we've gotten one or two of those requests as well. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Political Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.